Welcome to Bloom, a podcast about anything and everything, which features conversations with people who have led meaningful, interesting and flourishing lives in order to better understand each other, ourselves and the world around us. I'm very fortunate and honoured to be joined today by Professor Pat McGorry. Pat is an Irish-Australian psychiatrist, leading international researcher, clinician and advocate for mental health reform. Many Australians will recognise Pat as the 2010 Australian of the Year and for his leadership of mental health organisations such as Origin Youth Health and Headspace. Pat is also the chair of the Expert Advisory Committee for the Royal Commission into Victoria's Mental Health System. Thank you so much for being here today, Pat. Thank you, Nick. So, Pat, you're one of the most influential and recognisable faces of mental health advocacy and reform in Australia. For our listeners who aren't as familiar with you or your work, could you please outline the key moments of your life and career journey which brought you to this point? Well, I, I guess it goes back to my own adolescence, really. You know, um, I, I suppose I was... This was in the 1960s, um, and it was a time of great idealism, I think, in the world. You know, the, 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 um, 1968 was the year of revolutions, mm-hmm. and um, I was very affected by that. Maybe maybe temperamentally I was already predisposed. I, I, I'm not sure about that, actually, but the times certainly were, were good for that... that Mindset and that aspiration, I suppose, in terms of what you could do with your life. Mm. Um, I immigrated to Australia at the age of 15 with my family. I was born in Ireland but had grown up in South Wales and we came to Australia. Um, so, in a way, Australia had a delayed sort of experience of those, you know, geopolitical changes in the late 60s. It didn't ha- really happen in Australia until the early 70s. But mm. um, in my own family, um, you know, my father was a doctor. Um, he had been a TB physician, then was a, a doctor looking after people with chest diseases in coal miners and, and those sorts of jobs. And um, and he thought, um, he had a limited view of what was possible in a life. You know, being an Irishman, you know, the, the, the secure sort of things to aim for, for were the professions like, you know, medicine especially. Um, and these were, these were chosen to... A, avoid, I suppose, financial insecurity and um, to avoid the immigrant ship, really. Um, so he, they had a the mindset that you had to do something safe. So I had a lot of pressure on me in late high school because I'd, I'd always been a high achiever at high, sc- mm. at high school. I always tended to come, like, first in the year, you know, in exams and stuff like that. And I was, I was ducks of the, of the school, Newcastle Boys High. So I could get into medicine, so there was this was huge pressure to actually do it. You know? mm. And I actually had a much greater interest in humanities and, um, you know, I suppose, you know, languages and those sorts of things. Um, so I wasn't, it wasn't really my first choice, but he kind of talked me into it um, and I gave it a go and I, I sort of was able to do it, you know, like um, I, I was I was succeeded in the first few years of, of medical school in terms of exams and stuff like that. But it didn't inspire me, it was pretty dull, you know. Um, and it wasn't really until I actually got into the more clinical period and especially when I saw the state of psychiatry, you know, which I had been very interested in intellectually because it was like a blend of the arts and the sciences really ranging from philosophy right through to, I suppose, clinical care and, and even neuroscience too. Mm. So it had a, an amazing sort of blend of, you know, uh, what's the word, disciplines within it. And also you could see the human rights challenge, you know, the, the, the incredible mistreatment and stigmatisation and 
even abuse uh, in the institutional area of, of patients. Yeah. Um, and it was like sort of being in the 19th century at the same time as the, as the 20th century. Mm. <clears throat> so massive challenge and, and it really an outlet for that sort of idealism that I had spoken about and, and been influenced by my, um, during my you know adolescence. But I kind of felt I couldn't, initially I couldn't really be part of it um, because then you're kind of colluding with this, uh, this kind of um, coercive and um, terrible system that people were uh, being treated within. So, and I read a lot of anti-psychiatry material and explored other ways of working in the mental health field apart from traditional medical specialisation. But, but um, I, I had um, returned to Newcastle um, um, after where I'd been at school and, and, and I was an intern there. And then a few years after that, a medical school was set up and I was actually a medical registrar at the time. And the medical school had a very inspirational professor of psychiatry called Beverly Raphael, who was a very much a humanitarian person, um, kind of exuded all the uh, all the kind of qualities that and values that psychiatry should be about. You mm. know, um, and um, so I went and had a talk to her, and she encouraged me to to give training a go in psychiatry. So I I, I did actually go down that track, and. While the, the conditions of, of work were, were very brutal, I would say, the training and the kind of role models that I was exposed to were much more hopeful and showed a way forward and, and very preventably focused and mm. I could see a way that I could actually make a difference. As a millennial looking back, I find it astonishing that there was an anti-psychiatry movement at all and considering the changes from when you were starting out as a student to now, the field of psychiatry and medicine must seem like two different worlds. You mentioned the humane nature of the clinical work really animated you as a student, but I'm interested to know what keeps you motivated now, working at the strategic and leadership level of the profession. Yeah, well, you can see all the anti-psychiatry books right over there, mm. R.D. Lang and, you know, on my bookshelf still, Psychiatry and Descent. I've always been powered by, by that kind of um, activism, I suppose, you know, um, I still am. Um, I might look like an establishment figure, but... Mm just beneath the skin that I'm, I'm a very different kind of person mm-hmm. um, so what I kind of learnt was um, there's a way of actually using the power of sci- scientific approaches and um, the health system if, if you can actually credential yourself within that world then you have a much better chance of reforming things mm. provided you don't you don't end up um, getting institutionalised yourself in the process, <laughs> yeah. know, which is a risk, you know? yeah, yeah. and getting seduced by status and power and those sorts of things. And mm. I've seen that happen to many people mm-hmm. who end up doing very little. Um, so um, I think that's how I've, I've dealt with it. And um, I never imagined when I was starting off that I would, you know, be successful in, in, in those ways. But mm. so it's a bit like in football, if you if you work on your skills and you focus on the thing right in front of you and don't get ahead of yourself then all these other things seem to take care of themselves so when people people ask you you know for your five-year plan it's not a very good thing to ask because you just got to focus on the basics in a sense I mean you have to have a a, a vision about what you want the world to be like Mm -hmm. and it has to be fairly utopian in a way and I heard the editor of Lancet last week who, who we had a meeting with in London Use the term 
realistic utopianism. You know, in other words, you know, you're aiming for, for an ideal, but mm. but it, it but it has to be a realistic, you know, sort of vision. Tempered by, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's sort of what I and my colleagues have been working on. You know, and we have achieved, I would say, oases of of, uto- of realistic utopia. Yeah. Like you mentioned, Headspace, Origin, and previously uh, the Epic program. We, and they're very simple propositions. You know really intervening early in a, a humane and expert way with conditions that are potentially very serious. You know? yeah. That's the one thing I did learn in my early days working in psychiatry that while the philosophy and the human rights perspective of anti-psychiatry was actually spot on, their understanding of the nature of the illnesses that we are dealing with was, was off. Yeah. You know? And these were, these were very serious problems which were health problems, they mm. weren't kind of social problems. Um, they had social determinants and social uh, influences and impacts, but fundamentally a health model was the right way to think about them. Yeah. And if you if we sort of come back to, to center frame with Epic, Origin and Headspace and your efforts there over the last 35 years in Victoria, in Victoria alone, mm. um, why are targeted mental health services um, so critical for that discrete young period of life and those particular conditions yeah. and I guess why is Origin, Headspace um, and Epic had so much traction in the community? Well I think um, one of the first things I learned was I came down to Victoria with Professor Bruce Singh who gave me a, the role of setting up a research unit at Royal Park Hospital which was uh, one of the old mental hospitals just down the road from here where John Cade had been the superintendent who discovered lithium so kind of inspirational sort of history. Hmm. And, but it was the first time a research unit had been established there, and we decided to focus on first episode psychosis. And immediately we saw that the model of care, which was a, a chronic pessimistic model, you know, um, someone once described it as like the management of the British Empire, <laughs> the orderly management of decline. You mm. know, that, that's what the management of schizophrenia was like, because mm. no one expected people to get better. They thought it was a deteriorating illness. And we saw these young people brought in with their first episode of psychosis into these environments and they were sort of um, contaminated with this incredible pessimism and they were traumatised because they saw their futures laid out before them Yes. Um, and they were treated in crude and unhelpful ways with massive amounts of medication which they didn't need, they needed only very tiny amounts and they needed a whole lot of psychological and social kind of help mm. and support which had to be expert and evidence-based too, but it wasn't. And so, and the families were kind of distraught as well, of course, you know. Often the admissions were involving the police, which sadly even today that's, that's, the, that's the rule rather than the exception. Yeah. Um, and um, so trauma was being, being inflicted on these, on these young people. So the first thing to do was to try to, you know, reduce the harm, the atrogenic aspects, and then start to take the opportunity of, of um, an early intervention approach and a recovery-orientated approach, which mm. we did for a number of years, leading up to the establishment of the EPIC program, which was much more of a community-based early, early detection and intensive care approach in the community. Mm-hmm. It wasn't rocket science. It was, it was absolutely obvious when you saw what the needs of the patients were, if you listened to them and you could imagine what was needed. Um, it was really applying the principles that you would apply in, in cancer or heart disease to psychiatry. Mm. I actually got the idea from that, from Newcastle, from working in a diabetic education and stabilisation centre run by 
Dr. Paul Moffat at Royal Newcastle Hospital, where newly diagnosed diabetics were brought in on an outpatient basis for an educational program for a whole week. Yep. And their diabetes was stabilised and they were educated about how to manage the illness. A one-stop shop kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Complement with dietitians Compl- and, you know, other professionals. And, and um, by the end of the week, their illness was in much better shape and they felt much more empowered to manage it. And, mm. and so that was a very simple thing. Now, the same approach we, we tried with people with newly diagnosed with psychosis, much more challenging because the... the their, their uh, ability to sort of learn and understand was compromised by the illness itself because the brain's obviously involved and in the, in the mind. Um, but nevertheless, the, the health psychology of it was very similar. Mm. And most of what we regarded as abnormal behaviour or insight in relation to insight was actually just due to the massive challenge of adaptation to the diagnosis mm. as much as the illness itself. So mm-hmm. so working in those ways, we, we just tried to apply the principles that would be normal in other areas of, 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 of healthcare. Yeah. So to get a sense of the scope and severity of what you've called the Australian Health System's mental health breakdown, there's a really helpful summary on the Australians for Mental Health website, which you co-founded, and it strikes me as a really um, excellent distillation of the key issues <coughs> in the Australian mental health ecosystem. It says, mental illness affects 4 million Australians. Every day, eight Australians take their own life. Australia's mental health services are fragmented, underfunded, hard to access and of poor quality. People who need help can't get the care they require. Can you expand upon this and perhaps give a more detailed accounting of the size of the problem and the inadequacy of the current model to meet the needs of the population? Well, um, this is a worldwide problem. The Lancet produced the Global Mental Health Commission late last year and it, it showed the state of the problem around the world where even though mental illness is the, you know, the number one non-communal disease um, in terms of its impact on the economy, the global economy, GDP reduction of 4% mm. across the board, um, much more than, twice as much as cancer. Yeah. Um, um, and the reason for that is because it affects people in the prime of life, unlike cancer. Um, despite that, and despite the prevalence of the of the problem um, it's treated like a minor issue by the health system mm. so it's something like 14 or 15 percent of the burden of disease if you if you count it carefully in Australia and it receives about six or seven percent of the health budget in the UK it's double that in terms of the health budget as well isn't it yeah that's right so but but even there it's still um, then that's it's the model of care that's the problem too so right. and the quality but so um, it's not being taken seriously. I mean, another figure that's on the website is the contrast with the NDIS. Here, we have 400,000 people with physical disabilities and the, the society and the government have decided to spend $22 billion a year on looking after those people in a better way, which is good. But you contrast that with mental illness where 4 million Australians are, um, every year are affected, mm. probably close to 2 million of those in a, in a moderate or severe way, and yet we're spending something like $9.6 billion a year on those people. So yeah. again, the mismatch and the underspend is, 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 is catastrophic, and it means that access is poor, the timing of access is poor, there are long delays, and even if you get access, the quality is very patchy and inconsistent in, in, a, in a sustained way. So mm. all that means that 
All that means is that a lot more disability results and pre preventable deaths result, not just from suicide, which you mentioned, but also, as we saw earlier this week, when the Lancet Commission on Physical Health and Mental Illness was published, on, in terms of physical illness, where people are dying up to 20 years earlier mm. as a result of cardiac disease and cancer, in, in, in uh, people with mental illness are dying up to 20 years earlier than everybody else. So extraordinary, isn't it? It's an incredible, you know, denial of human rights and, and um, you know, I suppose equity. Mm. And the surprising thing, we have Alistair Campbell and uh, coming out to Australia next week mm -hmm. to try to help us analyse in pub in a public forum public forums and the media why that is, is the case why why are the Australian public why are the, the societies all around the world tolerating this state of affairs yeah. what are the, what are the reasons whereby our politicians you might say how can they get away with it but I would say how are they not empowered by the public to deal with it that's yeah. probably a more charitable way of putting it yep. because I think I think most politicians I've met if there was a groundswell of public pressure and support for doing something more definitive like what happened with the NDIS, yes. they would do it. It's not like... A tipping point of public activism and pressure, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. There's, the social movement is weak in mental mm. health and it's divided. Some of the consumers, because of the bad experiences they've had, don't support what, what we're trying to say and yeah. what we're trying to do. They undermine it, actually. And yet there's an incredible uh, potentiality there, I suppose, for such a social movement because mental uh, ill health does affect... Yeah. Everyone personally, or in terms of people that they know, it's one of the most sort of proximate. Um, Everyone knows someone, or they've exactly. had problems themselves, yeah. um, or someone in their family. But and, and the social movement. This, this is the whole idea behind Australians for Mental Health to create mm. and 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 uh, uh, sort of mobilise and, and engage the public to, to create that social movement too, because that's the only thing that's missing. We have all the facts, we have all the evidence. We know that mental health interventions work just as well as physical interventions yes. if they're delivered properly. Um, and the politicians and the public know all this. We've got great awareness now, um, and we've got great talent, you know, uh, as well. But um, the missing ingredient is the public's demand for equity. Yeah, and I think even when you sort of um, pitch it in those economic terms, that you did these people pay taxes ultimately, and if they're dying twenty years earlier than they might otherwise, had they, you know, mm. uh, received appropriate treatment and care then it sort of pays for itself in terms of economic terms, and that's a hard argument to, to make to, to, the, to the public or to politicians. But Not, I, not I, really. We have, the pro we have a Productivity Commission inquiry yeah. now, as you know, um, which is looking at this, and it was set up partly to look at efficiencies in the current spend, which is fair enough, but, mm. but the, they're also looking at the, the, at the consequences of the underspend, yes. which is huge expenditure in other areas, yes. like you know welfare payments. Um, in, here in Victoria, we're building prisons at a rate of knots, and, and those prisons are full of people with untreated mental illness. So, mm. so there's a whole lot of money that could be saved if we actually funded direct care in a better way. So what would that ideal future state mental health system look like if it was fully funded um, in the manner we do services for other non-communicable diseases like cancer or heart disease? Mm. And, and I suppose that you've already alluded to it, but what would be the social, medical and economic impacts or dividends that we yield from such an investment? Well, I think for a start, we, in, just on the humane argument, people would there'd be a lot less suffering, and mm. there'd be a lot less disability, and, and you'd see more flourishing lives rather than blighted and um, you know um, uh, burdened lives. Mm. But I think if we if we look at what went wrong here, um, and this is what was part of my witness statement to the Royal Commission, um, and the, the term Victoria's mental health breakdown, 
uh, is relevant here. 25 years ago, um, around Australia, in the wake of the Burdekin Inquiry, we dismantled the old mental health system of the 19th century, and the promise was we would build you know, a fit-for-purpose, uh, integrated system, mainstreamed with general health care. So the beds were reduced dramatically, mm. a huge amount of money was saved by state governments, and mm. these, the, the small number of beds left were put into general hospitals, and they promised to build a proper community-based system, a platform of care that would uh, enable us to, to work without, without so many beds. Um, and of course, that's been a failure, really, because you know, and there's been disinvestment. So now, that, uh, um, there are three percent of the community that are affected by serious mental illness. Only about one percent of those people actually get any access to care in Victoria. So two out of three people are turned away or mm. get no care with the most serious forms of mental illness. Federal governments actually improved their side of things from primary care by better access and also headspace and things like that. But there's a huge gap in the middle, which we call the missing middle, which cannot actually get care. It's probably about 10% of the population. Mm. So imagine if 10% of the population with cancer um, uh, or or 10% who had cancer uh, were unable to get care. That would be completely unacceptable. Yes. And it's probably about half of the people with mental illness are in that situation at the moment. For example, Um, with a too ill for GP treatment, but they're not um, ill enough to be admitted to yeah. hospital or other sort of comprehensive care? Or? So, so it's like sort of with cancer, waiting until people have got metastatic cancer before providing any type of care, and then even yeah. then it's just patched up and sent, sent away again. And that so, would be intolerable in society if that were the case. Yeah, it? it would be absolutely intolerable. And, and, and so that's why we've got a Royal Commission to, to look at how that happened. And really we, the problem was we just dumped the the old type of thinking and institutional thinking into these into the general hospitals and it sat there like a, a big iceberg sort of melting away over the last 15 years or so and mm. we've been drawing attention to that I certainly have and other colleagues have over the last 10 or 15 years it's people the governments have been completely deaf to it and, and even though we've been developing solutions modern 21st century solutions like origin and headspace alongside of that They've disinvested in things that work, actually, in general. And so there's a, there's a complete rebuild need, needed, yep. redesign with lived experience heavily involved, as, as is happening now. Yes. Um, but a complete redesign, not a, a, a patching up. Some of the submissions of the, to the Royal Commission are suggesting all we need to do is just, you know, strengthen the existing seats. It's fundamentally correct, the design, but just needs to be... Um, you know, reinvested in more heavily. Yes. No, it needs to be properly designed um, and it needs to have the right age bands, you know, so mm. child up to 11, youth 12 to 25, mm-hmm. adults 25 plus, and then an old age component. But with community based platforms and the inpatient care yes. uh, as a secondary sort of step, not, not the primary focus as it currently is. Yeah. And one of the issues you've identified in other um, interviews I've read is that there's that sort of precipitous um, drop-off from age 25. You can't access um, services that you had been accustomed to. There's no kind of sense of um, the continuum <coughs> of healthcare, uh, mental health care. That's um, right. Uh, well, I think those boundaries have to be soft ones, don't they? Whether mm-hmm. it's around puberty or around mid-twenties, you, you want to have a bit of flexibility because people yeah. are at different stages of their lives. But the problem is, in the youth area, we have built an infrastructure headspace which is promising. It's still got a few weaknesses. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but the biggest weakness is once you have a more complex problem, there's no 
more intensive or specialised piece behind it, uh-huh. apart from you know hospitals. Mm. And the hospitals are not structured the right way for young people either. So the, the reform task is, is still at base camp. You know, we, we have built a base camp, but yeah. we haven't climbed the mountain yet. And you can see Everest in the distance. That's, that's wonderful. But you, you are also on record as saying that um, you're incredibly, well, incredibly optimistic. One, because the Victorian uh, state government, the Andrews mm. government, has said that they'll accept the recommendations of the Royal Commission's report. Yeah. Um, but there's also a golden ep- opportunity for generational mental health reform of the kind you've alluded to before with... Prime Minister Scott Morrison announcing the government's zero suicide goal. Um, Health yep. Minister Greg Hunt has lived experience um, of yeah. a family member with mental health illness, and I think a lot of his um, personal witness to that is quite powerful. Um, and of course, we've got the Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system. So, I, I guess, what's your feeling in the community now that the stars seem to be aligning, and and how realistic is some of this sort of generational change that's been um, spoken of? Well. We do have this once-in-a-generation opportunity to grasp it. The question for the Prime Minister and, and, and uh, Greg Hunt and Josh Frydenberg on the federal level and for Dan Andrews and Tim Pallas at the state level and probably other state governments too is do you understand the scale of the task in front of you? Um, yeah. It's not going to be a question of spreading modest amounts of money, millions of dollars, or even hundreds of millions of dollars around the mental health sector mm. to patch things up. It's a it's a radical change that's needed. It's going to need state and federal governments working together. Mm. And I, I'm encouraged by the fact that Greg Hunt has met with Martin Foley recently. Um, oh, good. Um, I, I um, encourage that. Um, and uh, I think reaching out to the New South Wales government, if, if those three governments were able to come up with a commitment to this from both sides of the, of the river, you know, state yeah. and federal... Then I think we could really see some significant change. But they have to listen to the small group of experts that really know what needs to be done. Mm. And, and it's not a very big group in Australia. There are lots of stakeholders pushing their own vested interests. But there's a there's a, a consensus amongst the people who really understand the nature of this, uh, what's needed in the system, and that obviously includes, you know, key key leadership from lived experience from families. They, the families and the people who have experienced mental illness really know what it, what mm. they need. And we they know that we, we have the ability to provide that too if, if the cultures of care are right, yeah. which involve lived experience having power and influence in those, in those structures. But we've got to have respect for scientific evidence as well and for the leadership of professional groups that, that can contribute in a multidisciplinary sort of way. So it, it does need a decisive... Um, process such as we saw in the 90s with the reforms of the 90s that wasn't done by consensus that was done by by really um, having a plan you know, a clear plan mm. and and um, I think where the consensus needs to sit is with the public yeah the public consensus needs to be built and this is why these commissions are so important because the only way you're going to build a, a public consensus that's going to overwhelm vested interests and, and inertia and history um, is with the public being, you know, yeah. convinced that there is a plan that's going to work. Yeah, which is why I think a lot of the reporting that the ABC and Fairfax have done on this Royal Commission is so um, uh, yeah. powerful and potent yeah. um, because of all the striking personal testimonies that have emerged and have been covered um, really well. But they've also kind of, um, you know, which is, I think, crucial in terms of building up that 
uh, <coughs> public uh, demand or consensus for a significant investment of public uh, monies into this uh, fundamental system redesign you've spoken about. But it, it is quite, um, uh, you know, disheartening or difficult to, to listen to, I guess, the disproportionate ways mm. in which vulnerable minority groups in particular, such as Arab, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Australians, recent migrants, the LGBTQI community, and other communities of colour have been affected by the mm. uh, the failures and flaws of the mental health system. Mm. And of course, that has debilitating, compounding negative effects on their lives, especially when it's young, because it then tends yeah. to ripple throughout their lives. Absolutely. But could you maybe reflect on the nature of these challenges that mental health uh, mental ill health presents generally but particularly on these vulnerable communities yeah well i suppose lgbtiq we've made a special effort within the youth mental health field you know origin headspace to actually create a safe space for them mm. and 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 that's been represented in, in the data you know so people are voting with their feet there that they, they do come and they will seek help in, in mm. these safe spaces headspace centers for example um a lot more work needs to be hap- happening in the multicultural communities to to make that a reality. You know, I was in Bankstown recently at the Headspace where I saw some incredibly good clinical work being done with um, young women from Islamic backgrounds, mm. helping them deal with the cultural mm. adaptation and the, you know, they were they were in suicidal crisis because of this, you know, two world problem that they're yeah. in, you know, and the, and the adaptation to that. So, that a lot more could be done there. Uh, indigenous, of course, as well. You know, mental health in indigenous communities has, has not been taken seriously and, no. and 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 not being integrated properly or or, or dealt with properly. Um, so lots of challenges. But I would just make the point that even affluent people, even middle class and affluent people, when it comes to mental illness, they cannot get the quality of care that they need either. You know, you see these people trying to construct their own health teams. You know. Uh, they they have means so they can probably do it, but yeah. but it's fragmented and it's, the degree of difficulty is poor is is, is high. Um, the professional groups are not organised in such a way as to meet the needs of the consumers properly. The, the consumers don't really they're not really in control of the situation. But isn't that extraordinary? Because even with all the resources and, and privileges that um, yeah. wealth I suppose would afford you, it's still yeah. uh, incoherent and difficult to actually find treatment. Absolutely, I, find it remarkable. I, I can't tell you how many people contact me. You know, um, over the over the years um, to try to get help with that, and it ranges from people you know from disadvantaged backgrounds in our own catchment area here but people from highly affluent backgrounds and mm. who are struggling to find you know quality care and um, you know that's what the challenge is developing financial models and incentives so that we can build a system that's fit for purpose mm. um, the expertise is there in pieces you know mm. but it hasn't been put together except in places like headspace and origin mm-hmm. um, and even then it's still a struggle because we haven't got all of the pieces mm-hmm. um, but uh, that's the challenge F- a financial model that's appropriate um, a little bit like the NDIS was a financial model although I wouldn't necessarily go with that one but a financial model that will enable multidisciplinary team care in a seamless sort of way for as long as people need it yeah so it's all doable, so that's where, that's where the optimism comes from. You know, I'm very confident that we know what to do. Mm. Whether we'll get the support to do it, um, will we, whether we'll, will we get the consensus, will we get the um, follow-through from, from Daniel Andrews and Scott mm. Morrison. I, I, I know both of them personally. I, I believe that they're sincere. Um, 
and the, the recommendations of the Commission here will be very important. But the best insurance policy to, to strengthen their arm is mobilising the public. So, mm. the, so these political leaders who want to do the right thing realise that the public will expect that of them now. Yeah. And if they don't do it, then there'll be consequences Electoral. too. Yeah. So I think before I mentioned that the, the power of personal testimony and, and storytelling and, mm. and narrative about these <clears throat> uh, extraordinary um, experiences with the mental health system and mental health in general, which I think are lost in the, the kind of, the, the, you know, the blizzard of statistics and yeah. which are all often inevitably anonymous right mm. but i think one of the most powerful memoirs i've read about um, mental ill health is william styron's darkness mm. visible which i think is one of the most accurate moving and compelling testimonies i've read about lived experience of mental ill health challenges and the fact that what seems like an overwhelming affliction is actually surmountable so darkness visible concludes on a hopeful note and i think it might be a nice way to wrap up our, our conversation today but it reads as follows one need not sound the false or inspirational note to stress the truth that depression is not the soul's annihilation. Men and women who have recovered from the disease, and they are countless, bear witness to what is probably its only saving grace. It is conquerable. The final quote of the memoir is a line from Dante's The Divine Comedy, where he finds his way out of the darkness of hell and the, the dark wood. And it, and, it's, and it concludes, And so we came forth and once again beheld the stars. So how do you interpret that kind of sentiment in the context of your work with young people uh, who feel that overwhelming sense of hopelessness and helplessness and that their mental health condition will never get better? What would be your final message, I suppose? Well, it's great that, great that you brought that up, Nick, because that was the thing which struck me. It was more in the, in, in the realm of schizophrenia and psychosis that I struck that. Mm. Um, uh, I, I suppose uh, corrosive pessimism is the term I used for it, which... The system was imparting to the, the patients, actually. It wasn't just the person felt that, mm. but they, they were told that that was going to be the, the situation. I mean, you, a cancer physician would never tell a patient, um, no matter what stage of cancer they were at, that there was no hope. But, but that's what psychiatrists were saying to patients who were diagnosed with schizophrenia back mm. in the 1980s, and you still hear that occasionally today. Um, depression, obviously, hopelessness goes with the condition. So it's incredibly important to, to, to impart hope to people with depression and also every mental health condition. And, and it's not, it's not um, deceiving the patient either. It's not yes. pathological honesty we're talking about here because most people do get better. Yeah. And especially now, William Steiner was writing in the, in the era before there were any scientific treatment, treatments. And even then, depression tended to resolve in most cases if the person didn't die from suicide. Mm. So... These days, we can get the vast majority of patients better um, with the treatments we have, plus their own resilience and their own, you know, ability to learn to adapt. Mm. The combination of those two things. So, I've got tremendous respect for people with mental illness, the resilience they show and the courage they show. Mm. Um, and you hear that from the Royal Commission every day. Yes. I think in their testimonies. Um, so I, that's why I do feel very optimistic and, and, and um, it's also why I hate the term resilience, to be honest, because you know, people, people often say, you know, if we teach people to be resilient, they won't get mental illness. Mm. That's, that's really victim blaming because mental illness happens to people not because they're not resilient, mm. because of a whole range of other factors. Um, and um, I think most people who are afflicted by mental, mental illness and the suffering that goes with it are highly resilient. Mm. Uh, I've seen that in my own family. Mm -hmm. I've seen it every day in my patients, and and I think um, we do have something to offer. Uh, um, and, and research is obviously a pathway to 
looking at cure even you know um, people don't like to talk about curing mental illness for some reason <laughs> but I've I've seen many people cured mm. um, and I think it's something we should aspire to in every patient really if we can mm. and if we can't we help them to recover and lead the best possible life they can and even if they still have symptoms that's that's very very possible yeah Pamagori thank you very much for your time today yeah thanks Nick thank you